Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, of course, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Nick D, Robert K, at Saul Goodman, Michael G, Tommy C, at Only Uranium, John L, and Sean M. On the program today is a returning guest. Justin Hewn has joined us. Justin is the founder of Uranium Insider, a uranium market research letter that provides actionable commentary and analysis of the uranium market. Justin is based in Southern California, United States. You can learn more about Uranium Insider and the service they provide via their website, uraniuminsider.com. Justin, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it. It's It's been a while. And obviously, we've chatted kind of uh, unrecorded over, over the years quite a few times. And you uh, you actually were my first interview not long after I launched this newsletter. So really looking forward to talking. I feel honored to have you back. <laughs> and of course, yeah, we definitely keep in touch uh, frequently, much more frequently than we do podcasts. But it's just how life goes and how things go. Appreciate you coming back and having a chat with us. Um, let's kick it off here, Justin. We've got a little bit of a different format here just because I wasn't able to prepare as, as much as I had wanted. But basically, the audience submissions really covered off my preparation to where I didn't have to do so much. But we've got a lot of good stuff to cover. And then I figured we'd just leave it open for open discussion, as I think we will have some as we go through some of these various topics. And of course, other points come up as we start chatting. But first, why don't you just give us some shots out of the gate, just on the uranium market at this point, anything you're seeing out there, maybe some just quick thoughts before we hammer down on some details. Oh, gosh, let's see. Overview. I, I honestly think the market, the physical market is essentially broken here. It's a culminating point after years of slow tightening, <clears throat> years of working through a lot of above ground mobile inventory that came from the excess supply of the previous decade, you know, and much of that came from state owned entities in Kazakhstan, primarily with a currency play with a depreciating Tenge ramping production as the commodity price continued to fall. Um, peak production for, for Kazakhstan was 2016. Coincidentally, that was the bottom for the commodity. And it's been just a very, very slow moving ship to get to this point. Uh, of course, we've seen a tripling or more uh, of the price of uranium. Since that point, there's been a strong recovery in the price. There's been a extremely strong recovery in the various elements of the fuel cycle. And we're now to the point where, where we have a confluence of, of tightening in the spot market and the beginning of a contracting cycle. And both of those two things are happening at the same time. All the while, the 43% of annual supply producer is seeing the most geopolitical and jurisdictional risk it's ever seen, becoming increasingly risky to the West, let's say, while the bulk of demand for nuclear reactors in the world exists in the West. 
it's hard to even talk about all of these elements without having the feeling that I can't believe what has transpired over the last two years. Like I, I literally cannot believe all of these elements that have come together that are supportive of the price of uranium primarily. There's obviously there's various elements that have to do with the investing side of things. The equities markets are going to do what equities markets do. And you know, we happen to find ourselves hopefully towards the tail end of the fastest rate hiking cycle that markets have ever seen in the history of the markets. Um, that happened right in smack dab in the first inning or two of the uranium bull market thesis. So there's that. But as far as the structural nature of the physical market and the trajectory of the price, we've been spot on with our prognostications over the years. And of course, our portfolio has done very well, despite the correction that we've seen in the markets over the past 18 months or so. The setup here, you know, I, I read this article that you put out, Andrew, uh, just yesterday, and I think you nailed a lot of interesting points in that article. And, uh, you know, to, to kind of wrap up what you had said and to wrap up what I'm saying here, I cannot envision an environment in which the price of uranium falls from here. And that's that's not making a statement about equities. That's not making a statement about where I see things going in the next couple of weeks or even the next couple of months. But I think we've put in a pretty solid floor in the 50s for the spot price of uranium. And I think the price is going higher and you have the very, very conservative nuclear uh, consultants saying the same thing. Uh, there's so many other elements that we can touch on that are behind some of those statements. But basically, I can say with, with very high confidence, uranium is heading higher. For many reasons, it's heading higher. And, you know, that's what we're positioned for. And I think that um, over time, uh, it already has and will continue to directionally move. The equities will directionally move with the price of uranium. There's going to be fits and starts. There are going to be ups and downs. And this is a notoriously volatile market, but we're heading higher. I think we've got a solid few years plus to, to this investment. Honestly, this could be a quote unquote super cycle for the commodity based on just some very simple elements of supply and demand and the growth and demand and the embracing of nuclear. Very, very exciting setup here. If you have a mid to long-term outlook for the sector, which I know that you do and I do as well, then this pullback has been an enormous opportunity. And I know that both of us have taken advantage of that. So yeah, we can get into the weeds on any of that. Happy to do so. And I appreciate the, the comments there and much of it, uh, we shared the same opinion here and we'll come back just for the sake of the audience and a bit of fun and pick on you just a little bit, Justin, but uh, you know, this has worked out really well. The time frame is, is extended. There's no doubt that uh, the time frame has been uh, extended as compared to when we showed up in this sector, which of course we could talk way back many years back that far and the setup's great. You know, we're in a very good position and of course there's gonna be risks there's risks that are unknown coming down the pipe that we just cannot predict. And we've already seen those things come to pass over the last few years, things that people were not able to predict. Not that we're in the prediction game, but we certainly have the direction correct. There's a few nuances and a few risks out there that remain. Uh, you know, broad market here, let's use one. The broad stock market uh, still has some question marks, which could impact this sector further. We've all been handed a fantastic opportunity 
over the last 12 months or so to uh, to look hard again at the sector, look hard again at the fundamentals, challenge where we could be wrong and act accordingly. And of course, prices have come back in our favor with respect to the equities. I want to come to another topic before we get into some of the audience questions, but meaningful people in the sector, Justin, you've been in the sector for a number of years now. You've been here for quite a while. You've seen the clowns out there. You've also seen some really good people. Um, I can think of a number of people that have really helped support outsiders that have come into this sector, you know, going back to 16 or so and onward. But there's been some really good people out there that have helped support new entrants to this sector with connections, with wisdom, experience. You know, there's some long-term people that have been in this sector for decades. How important have people become for you, say, when you first entered the sector versus now, and, and also how those relationships have developed and how you've been able to, you know, establish, you know, sorting out the clowns from the good people, if you will? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I would say that the network that I have established and have found myself a part of is unbelievably valuable to us. And, you know, I have been asked the question before, why do I call myself the Uranium Insider? Why do we call them? I don't call myself that, but uh, why we call the, our, our newsletter Uranium Insider. And a lot of that has to do with our connections in the industry, um, not only on the investing side of things, um, you know, communications with uh, people like yourself and some of our mutual contacts have been unbelievably valuable, but also communications with people within the sector that are actually operating nuclear power plants or trading the commodity. It's been a phenomenal experience for me, a phenomenal social experience for me. So I've made some incredible friends, yourself included, um, come across a number of detractors, but you know, I've got 60,000 followers on Twitter. I think I'm only blocking about a hundred people. So there's, you know, the, the, it's a tiny minority that are loud and obnoxious and infantile in their in their actions, in their their anonymous proclamations on social media. Um, I've made so many friends and it's been a really, really excellent experience for me and for my team. Um, so people, people are, it, it's all about the people. It's all about the people. It's all about the network. Um, if we were doing this alone, if we did not have this network, it would be much more difficult to come across information. And honestly, it would, it would be impossible be impossible to get the level and the quality of information that we do that we um, share with our paying members that information comes from our network largely um, of course it comes from our own work digging into the sector especially when it comes to modeling you know that type of information you can get from from EIA etc cetera, etc cetera. but as far as the ins and outs of the physical commodity trading um, world that has to come from people. And that is, you know, one of the most valuable assets that we have for this newsletter, for this business that we've started and for this investment um, is that network. So uh, of course we give the highest level information to the people that support us, but you know, I do what I can through interviews like this, through uh, the podcast that I've been doing, slow down on that a bit, but um, over the past year and a half with the Uranium Market Minute, through Twitter, uh, trying to share this thesis far and wide as much as possible. And I honestly believe truly um, at the core of my being, this is an unbelievable opportunity for 
investors to be long this commodity for the coming years. And so um, am I talking my book? Of course, everybody talks their book. When people are crying on Twitter, they're talking their book because they sold and they're desperate for the stocks to go down below the level at which they sold at. Um, when people are are pumping on Twitter, let's say, <clears throat> you know, they're long. And there's no way to get around that. Everybody talks their book and, and I'm doing the same. I'm an honest person and I truly believe this. And I'm also uh, an advocate for nuclear. So I, I want this to work out. I want the price to go up so that these mines come online because there's a serious shortfall in supply that is looming. And we can get more into the near-term um, structural nature of this physical market because we've had, speaking of people, we've had some conversations this week with people who will remain anonymous on this interview, but I can guarantee you that they are plugged into what's going on in the physical market. And I have not ever seen it as tight as it is right now. And I don't know where this near-term supply is going to come from to fix that. So people in the network is unbelievably important, period, the end. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, of course, everybody's got a, you know, there's means and methods that have to be managed. There's integrity, there's reputations, and there's a lot of things that you should care about. Uh, you know, of course, you, you guys, you know, calling yourself Uranium Insider, you know, it's, it's a service, it's a brand, it's a marketing tool. Of course, it's a it's a good name. I'll admit that. <laughs> I mean, people look at Smith Weekly Research and say, well, who the hell are you? <laughs> so, networking people is, uh, it's, it's, it's the top. It's absolutely the top. With all of that stuff comes, you know, you sorting out the bad people from the good people and these things as well. There's a lot of work that goes into this, and it's not always something that we can fully discuss on podcasts, but there's just a ton of work that goes into this. And most of the time, people is more important than things like grade, especially in this junior natural resource sector, whether you're talking about uranium or gold or something else, you know, it doesn't matter. It's the same type of situation in terms of people. We talked to a lot of the meaningful people in the sector, probably not everybody. And, and I certainly don't talk to everybody in terms of the equities. Um, but, you know, I think we do cover, for the most part, the meaningful people, the people who matter uh, to us and our network. And we also get to see uh, that care come back, the reciprocity in terms of, you know, we'll give you things, you give us things. Uh, there's there's a give and take style to it. And, and that comes with the relationships as well. And ego in the sector is like a plague. All types of this and arrogance is obviously a big thing in this sector as well. And, you know, we try to hold ourselves out without having those types of things. Let's move on here and move into a few other things. Um, here is a note that we picked up. This is from a social media entertainer, and I believe the credit goes to who sent this? Um, oh, a Mr. Saul Goodman, at Saul Goodman. This must be the real guy. And I quote now, I'll give you his answers to the questions at Smith Weekly won't have the balls to ask, end quote. I'll tell you what I don't have the balls for wasting my own time but let's continue here for just a moment and have some fun okay justin so these are supposedly the answers you're supposed to say back and i quote now risk off has caused all of this it's a multi-year thesis not for the faint-hearted end quote continuing with this statement and questions to you justin quote it wasn't a multi-year thesis when justin constantly said weeks not months but all of a sudden it is how can you be wrong for so long and still call yourself an expert? Why should I pay someone for a newsletter when they have been constantly wrong 100% of the time for two years? End quote. Justin, what's your response? 
Sure. My, my knee jerk reaction to that is, man, it feels really good to be wrong. Uh, you know, we're up 300% in our portfolio. We've outperformed the ETF benchmark by three X. So, you know, there's been plenty of short-term predictions that I haven't gotten right. Nobody expects anyone else to have a crystal ball. And the more mature you are as an investor, the more true that statement is myself included. So I subscribe to, let's see, four or five different newsletters. Um, one of them being yours and, um, all of them have mostly been wrong. Um, I mean, yours has been probably the most right. In fact, I've had some big wins based on some of your, your recommendations. And I think you operate in a very professional manner, which I appreciate very much. Um, but I don't read content coming from other, other newsletters or other interviews <clears throat> paid or otherwise and expect them to pass off the Holy grail to me, especially for free. Um, the other, the other thing that I think about whenever I hear really loud complaining on social media commentary is I think of this scene from the movie snatch where uh, Bricktop has just given a number of people uh, on the quote unquote inside some tips that the boxer is going to go down in a particular round. Of course, uh, Brad Pitt's character knocks the guy out in the first round, all hell breaks loose and somebody stops him as, as he's walking out of the arena and, and complains about his bad tip. He says, when I throw a dog a bone, I don't want to hear what it tastes like. <laughs> And so, so most of these comments come from, you know, some, some comment that I've made in a, in a, in a possible, in, in a podcast or an interview or something like that. And there have been moments where I expected something to happen in the short term that didn't happen in the short term. So hundred percent, you know, um, where we have been absolutely positively accurate and correct is on the overall trajectory and movement of this market. This is the big trade that we are at the table for. So regardless of what comes out of my mouth, um, I haven't faltered on that ever. Uh, uranium is going higher. I've been saying that for years. I am saying it now. It is going to go higher, period. Uh, that I can say with great confidence. What happens next week or next month, I have no idea. I really don't. And I'm, and I'm totally fine with saying that. Um, you know, a disclaimer that we put, I, I actually, not. I wouldn't call it a disclaimer, but it would be, um, kind of our uranium investing plan. And we share this in every single monthly newsletter. And I've shared it many times on my podcast. I've shared it in interviews multiple times. I've shared it on Twitter. And the, the Saul Goodmans of the world tend to ignore this type of quote unquote investing advice for whatever reason. Um, that is A, make a rational allocation to the sector. Sector is very, very volatile. When it runs, it runs hard. And you don't need to be overweight in the sector to see outsized gains when it runs. That's number one, make a rational allocation. And most of the time when people are in panic mode about an investment, their position sizing is too high. It's too great. And, and I'm saying that because I've done it. I've done it in the past. Um, I'm comfortable with my allocation to uranium right now, which is probably about 60 to 65% of my investable capital. That's a lot. Um, you know, I own precious metals, physical and equities. I own a bit of oil services and that's about it. And then I have a bit of cash, uh, but I'm, I'm definitely over the weight of the sector, but that's what I'm comfortable with because I literally spend, uh, eight to 10 hours a day, every single day, weekends included, um, in this sector. I know what's going on. 
Um, I know what's going to happen in the mid and long term with a pretty high level of confidence. And even then, I'm not all in and I'm not using leverage. So that's number two. Don't use leverage. Don't use margin. So number one and two are don't go overweight and don't be an idiot. Avoid short term options. Now, I love call spreads and I love put spreads when I'm shorting. I don't do that a lot, but and I don't do that at all in the uranium sector. Sometimes I'll short the market if I'm bearish on the market, but for the most part, I'm long. I love call spreads, but I, I use a spread rather than straight calls to help protect my downside a little bit. And I go way out. I'm not going for next month expiration. Avoid short term options at all costs in this sector. You will blow up eventually, period. Those are the primary elements. Don't use margin, don't use leverage, avoid short-term options, make a rational allocation to the sector and enter into positions if you are going to go long in tranches. You don't go all in at one point in time. Enter over multiple weeks, if not multiple months. Take bite, uh, bite sizes in, in your position. Um, and that has proven to work extremely well for me personally over the years. I plan to hold for the long term. I add on weakness, and that's why we're up uh, as much as we are. So I'm not sure really what else to say about that. How could I be wrong for so long and still charge for a newsletter? Well, we charge for the information we share, and it's a value exchange. And I can tell you right now, Andrew, our retention rate for our members is very, very high. It's north of 80%. Um, that is unheard of in the newsletter business, and it's unheard of in the membership business model. So uh, people that have paid us over the years continue to pay us. And so I believe that we have an extremely compelling value proposition with our newsletter. And anybody who's long this sector, in my opinion, should be subscribing to our service, should be subscribing to your service. Because even if you have a small amount of money on the table, you want to know what the hell is going on in the background, in the physical market. And that's something that we do. We keep people up to date on that. So. Yeah, I suppose that's what I have to say about that. Most of the time, you know, there's a few trolls that just troll me constantly and I try to just basically take the high road. I'm here to provide information to the best of my abilities and to the best that I can see um, out into the future, but I don't have a crystal ball and nobody does. And if you expect anyone to have a crystal ball, I think that that's your problem and not mine. Just refresh me, Justin, What's what are you guys charging right now for your letter? We charge 197 per quarter or 597 for the year. <laughs> Look, if you can't afford the letter, don't be in the sector. Get out of the junior natural resource sector and run away. For what it is, it's cheap. You know, looking back over the years and seeing some of these exchanges on Twitter, and I've seen a lot of them, we've determined over the years to not really engage on any of this silliness. We always internally joke, though, and and we always said, look, we can never block, and, and trust me, I've gotten plenty of, of uh, flack as well, but we can never block any of these people. And so it was that there was a no block policy on this side. The point is we want you to waste your time if you see fit. You should do it. If you want to waste your time, by all means do it. You're not going to get a response. At the same time, we might get a little bit of an entertainment out of it, which means we do spend a little bit of time on it for entertainment purposes, which is fun. Um, and we always get a few laughs out of it. So I think that's time, although little, it's well spent. And, you know, the other thing is, is our engagement policy. As I said, we don't need to give the audience all the details of that policy just for the sake of time here. 
but we just don't engage in silliness. Uh, we just don't care, you know, at all. And I don't care if it's offensive or, or I disagree. I, I just, it's not worth the time to lift a finger. And, you know, the other thing too, with respect to our audience and our members, which are two different things, um, we've not received a single note from our members to date about their dissatisfaction in the uranium sector. Not one single note from our paid members. And of course, I'm not talking about the Twitter stooges or any social media personality that's out there. I'm talking about our members. With the other people, we don't know you and we just don't care. That's the reality. Our real members, which is our paid elite members, these folks we do care about, they're seasoned. And I think over the years, we've created a group of astute natural resource investors. And thus, we've not received one note of discontent. I think on that, if you're tired, if you're beat up, if you're on the floor, I think you should go. The sector's probably not for you. The junior natural resource sector, probably not for you. You may not be cut out to be a junior natural resource participant. If you want to get out, shoot, I'd be happy to consider any block trades that'll help you get your way out the door. I mean, really, let us know. Get in touch. We'll review what you've got. If you got a block trade, heck, we might even find someone for you that might want it if we don't want it. You know, obviously some of the stuff that people are holding is garbage and we don't want it, but by all means, if we can help you get out, let us know. On the topic of Twitter and the clown show that continues to go on there, we've been clear on how to submit questions for people who want to contact us, questions for our guests on our podcast. We take the questions via one consolidated means. We take it by email. It's servicesmithweekly.com. That's the email. We aren't going to chase picking up questions on Twitter. And so if you want your question in the future to get to the proper place, email us. You can put them on Twitter all you want, but there's no guarantees we're going to pick that up. And so I'm not going to waste time and resources on chasing these down. So email us if you're serious. Please send us coherent messages, please. Please send us coherent messages. Otherwise, I'm throwing them right in the trash can, okay? I want to come back to, well, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because I want to ask you this because I think it comes back to another point that I wanted to make. But just on another mail submission, Justin, that we received, uh, this person, please, uh, and I quote, please, I beg you, it is mandatory about asking Justin's past wrong expectations. December 2020, 50X in small caps at 55. October 2021, peak in less than 18 months. November 2021, still a strong buying opportunity. April 2022, weeks, not months to see huge movements. Please, it is okay to ask about it. And I end quote. Justin, what are your thoughts? Uh, let's see. So December 2020, what did he say? 50X in the small caps. So from December 2020, from the lows of this market, we did see some 50Xs in small caps. So there's your answer for that one. Um, honestly, though, I don't think I'm alone in that I did expect valuations of equities to be higher at this level, at this price of uranium. Um, everybody did. And two things happened that, in my opinion, have affected this. One, like I mentioned, uh, terrible markets last year in the midst of a very, very rapid rate hiking environment made risk come off of pretty much everything. Uh, and two, the price jumped so fast with the advent of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust that nobody predicted, by the way. Andrew, you and I are extremely plugged in. Nobody knew that this was coming. 
until it was announced. And I remember, I remember talking with you. I remember talking with a, a number of other uh, folks in the sector when Sprott announced they were taking over UPC. What was that? April of 2021, if I recall correctly. That was news to everybody. So um, the fact that they purchased what was it? About 15 million pounds of uranium in two months, and the price went from the um, low to mid 30s to the mid 50s in two months. It's just too fast. I mean, equities went up two or three X in the course of three months. I mean, if you want more than that, I don't know what you're expecting. So from the tiny, the tiny caps at the lows before this market took off to the peak, we're going to see 50 X's in the small caps. So um, my answer to that question would be uh, this market isn't over. So ask me that when the market peaks out, we're nowhere near that. Uh, peak yeah. in 18 months, I was talking specifically about my expectations for the physical the physical funds to purchase hand over fist and we would see a short-term spike. That wouldn't necessarily mean that the market in this overall investment would be over. But I do still think at this point, it is possible that we see a high price spike followed by a correction back down to levels that make sense for the industry. That is entirely possible. That is in my opinion, going to be significantly influenced by capital flows into the physical funds and the physical trusts. And that's something that nobody can predict. So when Sprott first came on the scene and they raised an incredible amount of money in a very short period of time, the price went nuts. Everybody was thinking we were about to see a big price spike. Then risk came off. They have traded at a pretty persistent discount to NAV. And that theory kind of went out the window. Wow, risk is off. Now we have a bunch of physical funds and there's more coming. So I don't think these funds and these trusts are showing up for no reason at all. And uh, I think it's highly likely that we'll see a price spike. Um, it's not necessarily what I want from, uh, from an investment standpoint. I'm not talking my book here. I, I don't want to see the price go from $57.75 where it is right now to $120 in the course of four months. I, I, I don't want that type of spike. It's not good for the industry. It's not good for the developers. It's only good for the short-term speculators. But I can't control that. So what it, the market doesn't usually give me what I want anyways, and it doesn't usually give most people what they want. So um, will it happen? I have no idea. Do I think it happens? Probably. And I'm only saying that because I believe eventually capital will flow um, in a big way into this sector. And the establishment of all of these funds and trusts, the ones that are established now, that's Sput, that's Yellowcake, that is Zuri Invest that just launched and has been buying some uranium already. That's, uh, uh, what is it? Um, AMC that's going to launch next year at some point. They've kind of become a little bit of a black box, but um, that I do still believe is in the works. And then we're hearing of at least three more that are in the works. And some of those, at least one of those, we should hear about publicly in the next month or two. So these funds are being set up for a reason. That's to give investors and speculators the ability to expose themselves to the commodity without taking on minor risk. So that I think is going to happen, but that's an impossible prediction to make. Um, when we saw the money flowing into Sput really, really hard, I believed we were going to see a, pr a price spike in that time frame. That didn't mean I didn't at the time have a longer term outlook still for the overall investment thesis. So, you know, those those core statements of mine are, are never going to be retracted until and unless I see evidence of 
uh, reasoning for retracting those statements. So I can say everything I want, uh, but until I actually see evidence that proves otherwise, I'm going to continue to say uranium is going higher. And it is. I think I hit the first two or three questions. Was there one more yeah. at the tail end of that? I'll stop there. That, that's good enough. But the accuracy of the statements, look, I haven't checked the accuracy of the statements that were made and submitted. Sorry, I just don't have the time to do someone else's homework. And you always have to be questioned of nothing to back up what those statements are. But I'll soften this up a little bit here, Justin, and just say that, you know, I'm happy to admit that we've been incorrect on certain aspects of both performance and time expectations. Matter of fact, I've not heard anybody out there who has proclaimed to be perfect. If you've heard of someone, you know, by all means, please let me know because I've uh, not heard of anybody that's uh, been perfect in this. And anybody who claims that they are uh, should be looked at very, very hard and let's see the evidence of those details. Um, I recall back in 2017 that we said in our first research report that this had to move higher within five years. The sector moved in 2021. So technically we cleared that hurdle, but it really took every bit of that statement and it's back in our report. You can go back and look at it in 2017, our report, and it says that. And I was not happy with that result. I thought it was gonna happen earlier, but that's what we used as a time frame and, and a context to gauge that. And of course, we all wanted more by then, that's typical. And the reality checks us all. And here we are, and I really like where we are because we've had notable opportunities since then to redeploy capital, to allocate more capital. And the time frame, actually looking back, I'm quite pleased that uh, we're in this situation. And I'm saying that from a standpoint of being substantially getting a big haircut from October, 2021. Happy to say that. I mean, it's, it's substantial. Um, yeah. You know, everybody's gotten that whack. And the reality is, is I got to be honest, it's been very difficult to not make any money in this sector going back to the start. And the start being essentially, let's call it 2017. Uh, that's when we officially put out research was in 2017. The year prior to that was all spending time working on the sector in 2016. So I really just have a tough time understanding how money hasn't been made for all the participants, except those, of course, who only started allocating at the highs. Now, obviously, if you're any astute natural resource investor, specifically the junior sector, uh, you should already know how to allocate. Um, you know, but everybody does things differently. They all have different levels of understanding, as we've clearly seen. And how to deal with the junior natural resource market broadly is quite a skill. Justin, the point is, I think that uh, you and I aren't perfect, and neither one of us have crystal balls. And anybody who proclaims to have such, uh, please show me the evidence uh, that you do have that. For sure, Andrew. If I could, if I could follow up on on the comment you just made, I'm so glad you just mentioned what you did. I think that retail, sometimes inexperienced retail investors, will express frustration in the market or certain aspects of the market and believe that when you or I, or the guys from Segro, the guys from Sachem, or some of the long-term uh, investors in this sector that know the sector very well, when they tell you, or when we tell you, let's say that we, we love where the sector is now, and we are happy to take advantage of the dips in the sector, 
they think that we're just kind of uh, uh, wishful thinking. They think that it's just rhetoric, that it's some type of uh, psychological play that we're trying to tell ourselves that everything is fine when everything's not fine. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, I can speak for myself, but I can also speak for absolutely everyone that we speak to in this industry that knows what the hell they're talking about. They understand the physical market and they understand uh, investing markets. That they are extremely excited and confident about where this sector is going. And they are taking advantage of the weakness that is coming from broad market influences, rate hikes, liquidity coming off a bit, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you can get kind of cynical and say, oh, God, this guy's just always bullish. Uh, you know, I can't believe he's still bullish after what's what's happened over the last year. It's like, of course, I'm still bullish. The equities that I love are 30 percent off. And the sector has been de-risked to a level that I couldn't have dreamt of in the wildest wet dream three years ago. Uh, it's it it's truly a remarkable setup, and I, I just wanted to mention that because something you also said uh, a few minutes ago was that from your membership you haven't had a single email uh, complaining about the sector, and. I think that's a really, really important element because I think you and I have both done a great job with with our following, uh, especially our, our paid following, of informing them of the best ways of exposing themselves to the sector, the outlook, the time frame, the patience, and the understanding of the physical market that is necessary to have conviction to hang on, let alone add to positioning in such a volatile market. So when you see people pulling their hair out on Twitter, don't assume that we're having communications with members of our services that are even remotely close to what you're seeing on Twitter because they're not. In fact, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done and I'm incredibly proud of the people that we have as members because they have been stoic. And not only have they been stoic, they've been excitedly adding to positions. Um, and we believe that is going to prove to be the right thing uh, in hindsight when we go forward another year, another two, another three. And I'm not saying it's going to take that long because it hasn't taken that long. I mean, the equities are up 25% in the last few weeks. Um, will they pull back again based on broad market weakness? Who knows? It's entirely possible. But we know where the commodity is going. We believe that overall in the long term, directionally, the equities will do the same. Um, so I, I think you made a really good, a couple of really good points there. I just wanted to follow up. Yeah, appreciate that. And, you know, just to beat myself up a little bit more, I mean, first, you know, we don't have the membership that you have. We have a tight group and they're astute and they know what they're doing. These are junior natural resource investors, not just uranium investors, but they also participate in other things as we do. That's item one. Item two is, you know, the gold sector. I'll, I'll be honest, we've been involved with certain situations in the gold sector going back to uh, 2015, 2016, uh, had a nice little pop to where we all look fairly smart in 2016. Uh, but since it's been quite a drag, yes, there are specific situations that, that work out really well, exploration companies that have discoveries and, and this type of stuff. Uh, but generally we've had a, we've been beat up fairly well in the gold market. What has been good on performance, we've given up with length of time. And so we have those issues and you know our performance in uranium has been far better than it has been in gold. We're still there, uh, we're still in other areas. We still allocate capital predominantly via private placements. One of the other things is, is we are stupidly overweight 
from any any outsider's perspective that is in uranium but what we've been able to do to mitigate that is we've always kept a good chunk of cash in our portfolio and trust me we've got the record to show it no i'm not giving it to anybody that that's not going to pay for it but we have the record to show it we have always kept a notable cash position in the uranium sector typically tried to maintain that between 20 and 30 percent and because we've been able to do that plus the time that is taken for this thesis to play out we've also been able to allocate when prices have been lower because we've kept that cash and the allocation has been some on market but then also predominantly private placements again and so that's the way to do it and then when you couple this most people not everybody but most people also have income. So when you span income generation over multiple years, you're able to continue to allocate that income, typically received on a monthly basis or maybe quarterly or every six months, whatever. And you're able to allocate that money further. And so it has worked out fine. We've explained this really well to our members. And, you know, we think actually they get it. And, uh, you know, that's the good thing about this. And so I think that's pretty much it. I think we've hit this pretty hard. And that's where it stands. And we just wanted to provide some context here on this bit. Ask the questions that uh, apparently Smith Weekly doesn't have the balls to ask. Here we are. So a little bit of entertainment with some important takeaways. Uh, you get a shot. That was it. And, you know, again, never again on this program. So I'd like to move on unless you have any other comments. Yeah, I just wanted to say one last thing is like the, the Saul Goodmans of the world. And there's a handful of others out there, you know, investing is hard. It's very, very hard. And anybody that tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. I would never say to anyone that investing is easy. Um, and investing in volatile, cyclical commodities um, is even harder, especially due to the volatility and the difficulty in predicting short-term outcomes. So, you know, anybody who's who might be down on this investment because they invested at the highs or they or they chose the wrong vehicles to invest in. It happens and every single investor, especially successful investors, will tell you that the mistakes that they've made in the early parts of their careers were 100% fundamental to learning and becoming a successful investor. So anytime you have made a losing investment, especially if you've booked those losses, um, you have to go back and look at your own actions and look at your own, to have some personal accountability into what led to those losses. Sometimes it's of no fault of your own, right? Because there's there's technical traders who will buy a breakout, a breakout of some technical pattern on volume uh, and then sell it if it loses any a specific moving average and they'll take a, a small loss, right? And that's a technical trade and they're fully ready to have a loss. You should be ready to have a loss at any time when you're investing. Investing can be simple, but it's very, very hard. So don't beat yourself up. Don't beat other people up about it. And the more you mature as an investor, the more you'll take personal accountability for your own choices with your investments. And that's why, you know, Andrew, you and I and every other channel that talks about, um, you know, podcast or YouTube channel, whatever it might be that talks about investing, you know, right at the top, I'm not a financial advisor, you know, do your own due diligence. You're not just saying that you have to. You have to do your own due diligence, especially in this sector. You know, you have to at least understand enough about the uranium sector so that when you hear somebody 
who knows what they're talking about, you can recognize that they know what they're talking about. I, I know that's a little bit vague, but if you hear somebody talking about SWU and you don't know what that is, you shouldn't be investing in this sector. You have to go and understand the fuel cycle and understand the implications of the physical market. That's a bare minimum. And that's why we focus on it. But I just wanted, I just wanted to mention that because um, absolutely everyone, and I'm not going to go into my own personal mistakes that I made as, as, a, as an early trader, you know, more than 10 years ago because I made plenty. But um, investing is hard. Investing is hard. And uh, even though we were up substantially in our portfolio over the past number of years, and we expect this sector to run very, very hard in the next few years, doesn't mean we're going to have 30 to 50% pullbacks. We're going to have more. It's not like we get through the pullback we just experienced over the last 18 months and it's all blue skies, sunshine, and rainbows. <laughs> no, we're going to have volatile runs up. We're going to have gut-wrenching pullbacks. And if you can't handle it, you should not be invested in the sector. Well said. And this sector is, <laughs> the junior sector is five times harder than normal investing. I mean, it's just, it's so much more complex. You're dealing with so many dirty companies and you're dealing with so many other aspects that you wouldn't normally deal with if you were evaluating shares of a cigarette company or a McDonald's or Hershey. It's actually quite simpler. Right. So yeah, look, there's been, there's been mistakes made. Uh, you and I are both happy to admit it, but at the end of the day, while mistakes have been made, those have been mitigated and here we are and we're showing good numbers in the green. And I, I can say that very comfortably. And we've also been able to do that for a lot of folks. And that was the whole point. Absolutely. And if we're successful, then of course we get rewarded. That's the whole game. Outside of that, for us too, I mean, when speaking for Smith Weekly, it's funny. There's, there's so many people out there that still think, oh, this, this guy is just a podcaster. He's just a podcaster. Uh, hey, let's keep it that way. Keep thinking we are stupid. Let's keep <laughs> it that way. Really, let's do that. And some of the, the arrogance, Justin, sorry to go off here. I had this uh, investor relation corporate development type contact us and uh, we actually reached out to them first. I won't mention names, but the response was, well, well, who the hell are you? I've never heard of you. Why should we consider talking to you? Yeah. It's, it is truly laughable. So yeah. let's move on here. So I want to come to another audience question and it does talk about Deep Yellow, which obviously, uh, you know, we've mentioned on numerous occasions that we do like Deep Yellow. Half the market doesn't like Deep Yellow and probably more than half doesn't like John Borjoff. But uh, this actually came from, I assume, a Deep Yellow investor, but in the listed junior sector, Justin. Um, that means I'm excluding the majors and state-sponsored shows here. Last cycle, there were only two large-scale notable conventional uranium mines built, that being done by the same team of which now is a deep yellow. To be fair, there were some smaller conventional and ISR projects built, but so many of them failed, and there, of course, will be lots of failures this time. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Justin? What do you think? I mean, it comes back to people. It comes back to how hard this business is, how hard it is to build a uranium mine, which is extra hard compared to some other industries. What are your thoughts on this thinking and question of how many people actually get over the finish line? Well, I think that the, uh, the number of projects developed in the last cycle being so few had pretty much everything to do with how quickly the price spiked and then pulled back. In the pullback of the price that happened to also coincide with the with the GFC, so you had a capital constrained environment where the commodity price was falling. The folks that did get 
you know, that was Paladin getting Langer Heinrich. That was, that was the Greenfield line that got into production in the last cycle. And, um, you know, they have to secure long-term contracts to not only de-risk the capital investments, but uh, to de-risk the entire development of the mine. This cycle, we have a few greenfield projects that are in the works and a number of brownfield that are in various stages of restarting, right? So Langer Heinrich is in one stage of restarting. They're expecting, I believe, the first production at some point next year with full production, if I recall correctly, in 2025. That, of course, is you know four to five million pounds a year with a significant offtake from the Chinese. I would be very surprised if they hit that level of production. Boss's Honeymoon is a care and maintenance ISR mine. Previous operators had a very hard time with the geochemistry of, of that deposit. That was Uranium One, previous operators. So uh, the Boss team, I believe, has done a lot of work to kind of de-risk that project. But that's, you know, that's a slow ramp, like a three-plus year ramp to two and a half million pounds. Um, we'll see if they get it. You've got some ISR stuff in the, in the United States that's making some headway. Primarily from Encore, uh, Encore Energy is, uh, you know, days if not weeks away from producing in Texas. Um, UR Energy in uh, in Wyoming, Peninsula in Wyoming, uh, Energy Fuels also in Wyoming with their ISR stuff. So there's a number of ISR projects in the United States that are moving towards production, uh, brownfield primarily. As far as greenfield mines. There just aren't a lot that are out there, especially in the publicly traded space, right? So you have Arano developing an ISR mine in Mongolia, and they're, you know, uh, optimistically looking for first production by the end of the decade. Um, it's, you know, our, our mutual friend, Andrew um, Gravedigger on Twitter, he, he had a really good thread that he put out. It was yesterday or the day before where he was discussing you know, some of the some of the effects of bear markets is that everybody gets washed out in a bear market. So let's say the previous decade, you know, 2011 to let's say 2020, pretty much, even though the commodity bottom before that still the equities did not the capital markets still uninterested in investing in anything uranium related equities or projects. The bear market washes out everybody. Um, mines go into care and maintenance or shut down the workers move on to a different industry um, capital uh, completely dries up as far as flowing into projects to become developed um, the skilled like i mentioned the the workers move otherwise skilled labor moves otherwise um, the investing sector disappears and you end up with this this industry that has had insufficient capitalization for close to a decade and then the price starts to move. And we happen to be in a situation now where the price is moving and the capital is 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 uh, is just not there um, or it's insufficient still. Money is expensive right now uh, due to the rate hikes that we've experienced in the last 12 months. So it's a capital constrained environment and the Greenfield projects, I would say primarily are going to be Global Atomics DASA, uh, not publicly traded, but Arano. Um, Arano in, in Mongolia. There's some other stuff in Saskatchewan that Arano is working on that they'll probably get into production with their saber mining at some point this cycle. And then, of course, you have, you know, the big boy, which is uh, Next Gen's Arrow. And this is a monstrous mine. This will be a mine. <laughs> Canaccord put out a piece a few weeks ago claiming that uh, first production from Arrow 
uh, will happen in 2027. I think that is extremely optimistic. Although to their credit, NextGen is ticking all the boxes in terms of moving this project forward. And I, as far as I can tell, they're doing a good job with that. Will this team be the, ultimately the team that brings it into production? I don't know. Will it be producing in 2027? I highly, highly doubt it. I think that's very optimistic. Will it get uh, producing in this cycle? I guess that depends on what you want to call this cycle. I honestly think we're in a constructive period for nuclear and for the price of the commodity out for the foreseeable future. Um, I do think between now and let's say the mid 2030s, which you know maybe we see uh, sufficient production come online if the capital is there and the industry has has the labor force sufficient to do it. You know, between now and then, there's going to be an investing moment where you're probably going to want to take most, if not all, of your chips off the table, and probably a heck of a lot sooner than that. You know, probably this decade. So the investing cycle is very well could be shorter than the overall, let's say, contracting cycle or positive price environment cycle for the commodity could last way longer than everybody is predicting. So there's not a lot of greenfield out there that's get, that's moving towards development. And the projects that are, like Aero, like DASA, um, oh, I should mention Denison, uh, Wheeler River, their Phoenix deposit, that they're testing at ISR, that seems to be um, going in a positive direction as well. They will probably produce, be producing this cycle as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's a little bit scary, honestly, because the rest of the greenfield needs way higher prices and is much more capital intensive. Well, next gen is capital intensive for Aero as well, but the payback period is extremely short due to the high grades. Um, but you know, some of the projects in Namibia, for example, that need multiple hundreds of, of millions of dollars invested, um, some of them even pushing closer to a billion uh, with a necessary price probably in the mid 70s and higher, some of them in the 80s and higher. You know, these projects are not coming online anytime soon. So it's just a very unique sector where production response can't happen quickly to the price. And I, I believe that's why we've historically seen absolutely huge boom and bust cycles. And I think we're in the early stages of another boom cycle for that reason. Good synopsis. For sake of brevity, I'll save some of my hot air on this. Um, I, I would just point out just briefly here that complex mines uh, when you look back, I, I think the last complex mine construction was Cigar Lake. Where are those people today? I mean, really track those people. They're not at Cameco. Most of them aren't. Um, that was done quite a while ago, Cigar Lake. I think that was the last large-scale complex construction of a uranium mine of that size. So I think you just got to put that in context and say, what's the chances of a very complex mine being built with a very large capex Oh, and that promises production that has never been seen in the history of the sector. You know, those questions would have you believe quite well-founded that these timelines, these prices, all going to be very difficult to achieve, uh, quite possibly not achieved. The the comment by Gravedigger that uh, everybody's, you know, ran off from the sinking ship a long time ago, and there's very little folks that are left that actually have that capable expertise. And I got to be honest, from a technical perspective, technical degrees and experience is very hard to come by in this day and age, specifically the experience. And so until that gets re-energized predominantly with policy, 
um, at some of the earliest levels, which has been pretty much abolished, it's going to be very difficult to see this happen without substantial capital coming into the sector. There'll be a lot of waste with that capital, tons of waste, Justin, as you know, but that's absolutely important to come through. Let me make one more comment on that, if I can, sure. Andrew. Um, one one good piece of news around this is uh, uh, France just recently announced that they are investing 100 million euros towards um, educating and acquiring skilled labor for building out their nuclear program. So you know, we are seeing signs here and there from uh, some of the countries that are highly dependent on nuclear and uh, planning on expanding nuclear in their country so we need to see a hell of a lot more than that uh going forward in the next few years but that is a, a good start for, for the country of france yeah how much good expertise we've seen coming out of the u.s these days to right. answer <laughs> let's move on here so zuri invest you've spent quite a bit of time on this uh, you've talked to some of the principals and some of the advisors there Zuri Invest, a little bit of a drag to get off the ground here, but uh, you know, for good reason. I think some of the reasons are good. And what are your thoughts on Zuri Invest? And let me just couple this just for the sake of time here with just another piece. You know, you've got the incumbents yellow cake, you've got Sput or or Spud in this case. When it's at a discount, I'm going to call it Spud. So whenever it trades at a discount, everybody call it Spud with a D at the end instead of a T. <laughs> with the Zuri point and how they've structured this, which is much, it's a different vehicle and it's, I think it's actually more intelligent. It's better placed, but with all these, you know, there is going to be an unwinding. Your comments on Zuri, is there an opportunity for utilities to use these vehicles for pounds or even as a hedge? What are your thoughts here and, and how this unwinds? Um, I don't think utilities are going to rely on Zuri or any other physical funds for future supply. That's not something that we've, necessarily ever seen uh, traders is another another story so zuri the way that it's set up is they only become sellers of uranium if they're having redemptions from the fund from their investors and there's insufficient cash or they can't cross that sell order with a buy order so they're going to hold cash in the vehicle um, unless they can purchase a minimum lot of uranium which is a hundred thousand pounds so what is that five uh, 5.7 million dollars i think right now roughly if my math is right if they have more than that they'll be buying uranium if they have less than that they'll be holding that cash and so if they have a redemption within their the realms of their cash balance then they just they can cash that person out and uh and they don't sell uranium so they only sell uranium if those two other conditions are not met when they do so i imagine they will be sellers into the spot market and utilities do not acquire a whole lot of uranium in the spot market, you know, maybe 15% of their needs at most. Um, and especially right now, there's there's essentially nothing in the spot market. I mean, I, I'm not gonna say nothing because there's ongoing production that sells into the spot market, but to give a little color on this, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit vague here and I'm gonna maintain the anonymity of of my contacts, but um, there was a large RFP in the market for UF6 or EUP by a uh, U.S. utility for the past couple of months. It actually is ongoing. They have yet to make a decision on on uh, who they're going to be buying from and what they're going to be buying and, and how much they're going to be paying for it. When I say large, it's not like, oh my God, large, historically unprecedented large. It's just a little bit on the chunky side. 
Um, nothing historically that shouldn't be able to be filled over the matter of a week or two. We're now going two months since this RFP went out. Um, so there's an entity within the fuel cycle, let's say, who um, wanted to respond to this RFP and needed to procure uranium in the short term to run through the fuel cycle in order to provide what the RFP from the utility was requesting. Their request for short-term uranium, I'm talking 2024-2025, uh, didn't get filled, period. Um, insufficiently filled. So where, uh, and this, this, this person told me that, you know, a year ago, it would have been filled like that. Um, the, the uranium, basically what I'm trying to say is it's been stated by people like myself, um, plenty of other folks in the sector that do the work that what happened last year in terms of the crunch for conversion and enrichment in the West, that that would quote unquote trickle down to uranium. Well, that trickle down is here. Um, uranium for the next two to three years is basically sold out. The primary producers are sold out of uranium through 2026. Um, even conversion and enrichment are, are mostly sold out for that time period as well. So it's all coming back down to uranium. It's happening. It's happening right now um, to the point where an RFP for couple of million pounds of uranium to flow through the fuel cycle to fill in larger RFP for utility uh, didn't even get halfway filled. So that's that's really, really significant of the tightness of the market. Um, so Zuri, Zuri, I think, is a great vehicle. I think it's very healthy for there to be co uh, competitiveness between physical acquisition funds in the sector. Um, so I applaud uh, what they've built. There's, I think that there's upsides and downsides to Zuri. There's upsides and downsides to Sput, and it's going to be a different type of investor that's going to invest in these two different vehicles. So um, I'm not of the opinion that Sput will forever be at a five to ten plus percent discount to NAV. Uh, I do believe capital will flow back in, and it'll get back to a premium. They'll be able to raise cash and buy pounds again. When that happens, I don't know, but I don't think it's a broken vehicle. That's, and I know that there are some people in the industry that do believe that it's it's essentially broken. It's going to be forever at a discount. I'm not in that camp, but I do like uh, I do like what Zuri's doing. And even though it's a bit frustrating that it's nearly impossible to get in, any information out of them, I kind of appreciate that too. It's like uh, investors in this in this sector are so emotional and so kind of desperate for information sometimes that when an entity is like, yeah, we're not going to tell you how much we raised. We're not going to tell you how much we bought. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's kind of cool to me. Um, but yeah. we do know that they have been in the market a little bit over the past week, week and a half. And um, the impact that they will have on the sector is going to be entirely dictated by capital flow. So the most unique aspect of this vehicle, in my opinion, is the fact that they are um, seeking immediate settlement, uh, less than 30 day, like front month settlement on their purchasing. And, you know, they have some wiggle room with that. It's, if they can get filled at like 35 days, they're going to do it. But they're not going to go out 90 days plus if they can't get filled. They just raised their offer. So um, it, it will dictate and make visible actual real-time price discovery in the spot market. And that's something that we've seen over the past few weeks. They had something to do with it. Um, uh, let's say the second that we're, I don't know how quickly this will be published, Andrew, but this is June 15th. Um, so it was like the end of the first week, the second week of June, they started doing a little bit of purchasing and that had an effect, but we saw the spot market run up $5 a pound 
you know, in the six weeks leading up to Zuri. And it was utilities and traders and producers that were doing that purchasing in the spot market. And I, and I can tell you as well that um, there are some entities that have been historical sellers in the spot market that have recently turned to buyers. Uh, I think this has profound significance, but I can't say a whole lot more about that. Um, so yeah, Zuri, way to go, Zuri. Um, like I mentioned, we're hearing about at least three more funds that are in the works. Um, I listened to uh, Mike Alkin in a recent interview. He said that he knows of four funds in the works, and maybe he's including ANU. I'm not including ANU in those three. So, uh, you know, by this time next year, we could have six or seven physical uranium acquisition funds. That is mind blowing. And if capital flows into this sector and into these physical funds and trusts in a meaningful way, it's going to be absolutely lights out for, for especially for the spot price of uranium. It's going to go backwardated. Uh, it's going to, it's going to fly. Um, I don't know when that happens. There's no guarantee that it happens, but I also don't think that the people that set these funds up are are stupid. And I don't think they're doing it on a whim that maybe investors are interested. The investor interest is there before even beginning the process of, of setting these funds up. So exciting times in that front and way to go, Zuri. Yeah, point well taken that there is interest and there's going to be more funds setting up because they're also seeing this. And so you're right. It's absolutely not that they're going to set up and, and hope someone comes in and gives writes a check. It, that's already happening before they're even making the effort to set up these accounts at right. the storage facility, the converter. So, yeah, I, I think that that's pretty clear that that's headed in that direction. And then, yeah, look, SPUD will become SPUD again. There's no doubt that we will see premiums coming into those these vehicles get off their discount eventually here that'll continue to drive it forward and then you have to remember and, and this goes back to of course the the reporting and the transparency and the fact that the, the term market stuff is, is so lagged on reporting and of course lowest offers get reported and all these other things that happens you know eventually it shows up you'll see it it will show up it is lagged but it does show up there, there's folks that were scooping uranium at 18 bucks there's people right. sitting on profits and, you know, there's always going to be, as you raise your prices uh, and the price improves, um, you know, there's going to be your sellers. And then there's, there's a few indiscriminates out there, right, that come in that will dump material into spot market. And so, you know, there's always going to be some couple steps forward, maybe a step back and, and this stuff as we progress higher, but all very positive here. And then, of course, the new funds that are coming out as well will uh, add to this. Let's skip over here and let's move into jurisdiction for a moment, Justin. What are your two favorite jurisdictions? U.S., Australia, Canada, maybe some highlight jurisdictions. But what are your two favorite jurisdictions for uranium mining? Right now, I'm pretty bullish on, on the United States. Um, so I would say Texas and Wyoming in the United States um, are probably my two favorite. If you want to call those different jurisdictions, I suppose that they are. Um, obviously, Saskatchewan is, you know, the best jurisdiction for uranium production, probably outside of Kazakhstan, and will continue to be. Um, you know, it's Canada is going to have plenty of bureaucracy that will slow down projects, but the historical precedent is there, and the development projects, like I mentioned, Wheeler River and um, you know Phoenix and, and Arrow, are are moving forward. And they're, they're in various stages of development. And I think that both of those will be producing this cycle at some point. So uh, Saskatchewan, Canada is, I think, a overall safe jurisdiction 
there is a, a very large presence of First Nations tribes in Saskatchewan. And so it's very important for development companies to uh, make sure that they shore up relations with the, the people that have historically owned the land that they'll be poking holes in. That's really important. So those, those T's have to be crossed and those I's have to be dotted. Um, so that, that's one element of developing that can, um, can pose some challenges at times, but you know, the companies I mentioned, NextGen and Denison are both, um, or they're, they're both fully shored up on that front. In fact, uh, I believe it's a chief of one of the local First Nation tribes near Arrow who owns a, a construction company and is likely to be involved with the development of roads and possibly even constructing the mill they're going to have to build for that project. So there's a lot of incentive for the locals to get behind some of these projects, but that is one element to Saskatchewan that you might not have, let's say in Texas in the US. So Texas is a great jurisdiction. It doesn't have as much wealth, uh, geological wealth you know, of uranium as Wyoming does, but both states are absolutely fantastic. And also the, you know, the thing about the United States is that people are always talking about how we ha the US has the biggest nuclear fleet in, in the world. And that's true. But without even really recognizing what that means and the significance of that, um, it's a quarter of global demand. 25% of global uranium demand comes from the United States and we produce nothing. Uh, and in this bifurcated world where the 43% producer of uranium, which is Kazakhstan, is increasingly becoming associated with the East. And of course, historically, it was you know an ex-Soviet Union state and they have... Half of the uranium from Kazadam Promise production already goes to China. Their most recent mine that's under development right now, the Budenovskoy uh, six and seven blocks, 49% of that got, just got pushed through to Rosatom. And they have a bunch of JVs with uh, uranium one. So uh, the risk for Kazakhstan's production is absolutely there for Western utilities. And this was not the case, um, you know, 12 to 18 months ago. So we believe that there's likely to be a premium on pounds produced in the United States. And this doesn't even, I'm not even getting into the recent um, support from the DOE to actually be buyers of uranium. So the DOE in their attempts to support the establishment of a HALU production circuit. So that's high assay, low enriched uranium. And some of the Development projects for SMRs, these quote-unquote advanced reactor designs, are set to operate on HALU. This is uranium that's enriched higher than 5% and less than 19.99%. Um, and so, of course, the RFPs for HALU is going to incentivize enrichers to establish centrifuges to enrich to that level. But it's also going to have to require domestic uranium to feed into that. So the United States is going to be a buyer of uranium in the next few years based on this program. And that's on top of the fact that we have the largest fleet uh, and it's going to be the largest fleet for the next few years, at least until China surpasses us probably by the end of the decade at the pace they're building. But it's, it's still a quarter of uranium demand comes from this country and it's producing uh, what did it produce? 100,000 pounds last year. Um, and they require 45 million pounds. So we're very bullish on uh, American uranium production here. Sounds good. I appreciate that. Let's move on for the sake of time. Fuel cycle, you touched on that already a little bit here. Maxed out conversion capacity, uh, arguably in the West, certainly uh, enrichment's bad place as well. How do you think this 
really impacts the demand for cake. What's your thoughts on fuel cycle capacity problems and the impact on cake demand? Um, I think the fuel cycle capacity problems are slightly overstated. Conversion is probably undersupplied by anywhere from 15 to 30,000 tons KGU per year. So Converdine's Metropolis plant is set to come online any day now, literally any day now. Um, they've got some promised production for the month of June. So I would be very surprised if we don't hear, let's say next week, something from the company. They're coming online at seven to 8,000 tons. That helps. They, of course, are pretty much fully contracted out through 2026. They've got a small amount of capacity, 2027, and that increases year over year as they go out. But interestingly enough, the Western enrichers are some of the largest buyers of conversion. So this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of yellow cake demand. Um, the, enricher, the enricher capacity problem is only a problem in that it really juices up uranium demand, and that's a problem for utilities. Um, so it's not necessarily a problem in terms of overall capacity and ability to produce sufficient EUP for Western demand. That can happen. It just has to happen at high tails assays. So that's what we're already seeing. Uh, new contracts for Western enrichers are going out at 0.3 and higher. Um, so for anybody who's not familiar with tails uh, in the in process of enrichment, I'm not going to go into a masterclass right now on that, but I will just say that Historically speaking, Western enrichers have been operating somewhere in the realm of 0.18 to 0.2 tails. And really the tails is just what's left over after the enrichment process. And that 0.18 to 0.2, that's the amount of U-235 that's left over in the tails. And so U-235 starts out at 0.7, uh, 0.71% U-235 uh, of the total mass of UF-6, um, of converted uranium, natural uranium. That gets the end product gets enriched up to about four and a half percent for most light water reactors. And the leftover material, however much of the good stuff the U-235 is left in the tails, that dictates how much energy, how much time, and the cost of the process. So if they want to run material through faster, so let's say produce more EUP faster with uh, a fixed capacity, they have to run it through faster, which means the tails end up having more of the uh, U-235 in them. So when they're transacting contracts for 0.3, what that means is the utility that has entered into that contract has to buy the uranium and have it converted and feed that into that enrichment contract. So if I'm a utility and I buy enrichment, so it's like, okay, I need 4.5% enrichment. I mean, I need this much, uh, this many kgus of, of EUP and, uh, and I need, and, and then that will dictate from the enricher, the how much SWU, how much that's going to cost, separate work unit, that's the cost of enrichment, the energy used for enrichment, and the tails assay. And that tails assay number, based on the quantity of EUP and the level of enrichment that I need for my reactor, um, in combination with that tails assay, tells me how much uranium I have to buy. So if I, if I sign a contract to 0.2, um, and then I sign a contract to 0.3, I have to buy 20% more U308 to feed into a 0.3 contract compared to a 0.2 contract. So it's a huge, huge jump. Um, in my opinion, based on the work that we've 
been doing and continue to do on this. Um, so first of all, Western enrichers, not all of their centrifuge cascades are running at 0.25. Okay, so they've already, the, some of their cascades, their operational tails, what they're doing right now, those tails have risen. And these enrichers are out there buying UF6 and they're signing conversion contracts. Um, which means they will actually also be out buying uranium. They have, and they will continue to do so, um, both in spot and term, okay? So the enrichers are buyers of uranium, and even though conversion is a big pinch point in the fuel cycle, the enrichers are some of the biggest customers of the conversion. So what that means is, while everybody's saying, well, nobody can over, they can't overfeed right now because they can't get conversion. Well, guess what? They already got conversion. <laughs> you know, They bought term conversion contracts, even though there's no UF6 out there and spot conversion is minimal. There is some, Orano's got some, Cameco's got some, Converdine will have some, but it's a small amount and it's very, very expensive. So the utilities that waited at the last minute are going to have to pay up, not only for spot uranium and short-term contracts for uranium, they're going to have to pay up for spot conversion or even, you know, near-term contracts of conversion. And there's minimal capacity, but they can buy U308. Uh, there's plenty of U308 out there. They just need to pay up for it. Um, you know, you made an interesting point with regards to uh, there's certainly entities that are sitting on uh, yellow cake that they purchased at, you know, 18 and 25 bucks a pound. And some of that could shake out at higher prices. But what I find really interesting is we're not really seeing evidence of that yet as we're sitting here knocking on the door of 60 bucks a pound. Uh, and this 60 bucks a pound didn't come from a sput driven price spike. This is coming from structural nature of the, of the uranium market. So um, yes, absolutely. We go another 10 bucks higher. Could some uranium shake out into the market? 100% it could. Um, did we say that $10 lower? Yes, we did. Are we seeing evidence of that? No. So I find that really, really interesting. Conversion's a problem, but it's not a market-breaking problem. And the fact that a lot of the conversion capacity has been consumed by the enrichers means they can, they are, and can continue to overfeed. Um, and these high tails assays are significant. I, I honestly think the actual demand from nuclear operations based on the rising tails assays um, is probably five to 10 million pounds higher this year. And it's probably going to be 10 to 20 million pounds higher next year in 2025 as well. And that's, you know, so you kick out this number, right? You bandy about the total demand for the world's nuclear reactors at, you know, roughly 180 million pounds. Well, that number is dictated by, uh, tails assumptions. You have to assume the tails assay at which uranium, uh, was enriched for the operations of the reactors. So when you do that calculation um, and you take, let's say 420 to 440,000 pounds of uranium per gigawatt, that's based on 0.18 to 0.2 tails. So when you see uh, Western enrichers and Western enrichers make up about 40% of global enrichers, right? And you still, the Chinese have a decent amount of capacity. Uh, the Russians have a lot of the capacity, but most of the reactors are in the West and are buying from Western converters and, and enrichers and miners. So bringing this all together into some type of coherent, concise thought, basically the fuel cycle in the West is sufficient to satisfy Western demand because of enrichers ability to raise tails assays. The kicker for that is more uranium has to be fed through that cycle. And the fact that enrichers are big buyers of conversion means that it is entirely possible and it's already happening 
it's just the market's very tight and the, the late movers, the utilities that are late movers, and there are late movers, uh, plenty of them, uh, not just in the US, they're going to have to pay up and they have already started to pay up and it's only going to go higher. I thought that was pretty good, Justin. I think you covered it pretty dang well. I think it's price supportive without a doubt. There's just too many problems. Even when you get into the capacity expansion discussion, nobody's doing any of this until there is good incentive to do so. And that hasn't even started yet. Of course, you have the Russia layer, which is another audience question that I wanted to just layer onto this as well. EUP imports from Russia, if that gets cut off, that's going to make life more difficult in terms of time and capacity problems. Any comments specifically on the Russia side and the potential for cutoff there, it gets solved with time and capital, of course. Or do you think that the U.S. government's going to come and save us? That honestly has been my most likely quote-unquote bear case. It, it's I, I, I always try to poke holes in the thesis, you know, as as any investor should, and my trust in governments to do the right thing is is very very low uh, even though we are seeing some evidence that in some cases they are um, and you know the United States DOE has been moving in a positive direction with with some of the elements in the in the inflation reduction act uh, supporting the nuclear fleet here that that's a positive um, I think that there's overarching regulation and bureaucratic red tape when it comes to new nuclear in the United States um, so I, I don't really know whether or not we'll see new nuclear. We're moving that direction. And so I have to give credit where it's due. There's certainly, you know, it's one of the only things that's bipartisan in this country is support of nuclear right now. So that's quite interesting. I'm hopeful. Um, as far as, as far as the Russia situation, I do think eventually a piece of legislation is going to pass in the United States that, that bans Russian uranium imports. Um, is it the Advance Act? Is it this other uh, Russian uranium ban bill? There's two, I think, that are moving through Congress right now with similar language. Gun to my head, I think I think one of them passes. Uh, there are caveats within the at least the Advance Act that I'm seeing that will enable the DOE to issue waivers to a nuclear utility in the United States to continue to receive Russian uranium, but that has to. The, there's two pieces that would allow that waiver to. Uh, to come to pass. And one would be that the nuclear utility has to make a case that they literally have no other option. Um, and that's not a pricing case. So it's like, oh, I, well, I can receive this delivery of EUP at uh, U308 equivalent of $32 a pound because we signed it three years ago and the Russians are going to deliver it. It's going to arrive at my door six months from now um, at 32 bucks a pound. But if I have to go out and buy spot EUP from anyone else, let's see, I've got the prices right in front of me. Spot EUP, uh, oh, hold on, that's a price for EUP. I don't know how to convert that off the top of my head to U308. But let's just say they buy Spot EUP at a U308 equivalent of $60 a pound. That's a big difference to them, but that is an option. So I don't know that they're going to be able to make that case based on price. I don't believe that they will. Uh, the second is that if the utility can make a case that it's actually, or if DOE can make the case that it's actually a national security uh, concern for them to not receive that delivery. So both of those two elements will technically allow for waivers. And I do know that there's not a lot of nuclear utilities in the United States that are um, 
utterly dependent on these deliveries continuing for their actual operation. You know, there's a couple, there's plenty of utilities that have bought future deliveries of Russia, uh, Russian EUP in the past that are expecting deliveries next year and the year following and the year following and the year following at very, very low prices, but they, it's not going to, um, it's not going to undermine their operations if they have to seek that elsewhere. It's just going to cost them a lot of money. So uh, I think I think something passes, and there's plenty of speculation that if and when it passes, that Russia will just be proactive and say, okay, well, you're going to sanction us. Well, we're just not going to send it to you. That's entirely possible. I do think that when this happens there will be a market reaction. We will see a reaction in the spot market pricing. We will see a reaction in the equities, in my personal opinion. And I think this has the potential uh, to hit at some point this year. Um, when exactly, I don't really know. Uh, things tend to move slowly through uh, the bureaucratic channels, but it's certainly there. And you know, these utilities that are dependent on near-term deliveries of legacy contracts are not engaging in new business with Russia. So this situation sort of plays itself out over time anyways, but a cutting off of future deliveries from legacy contracts is a pretty big deal. Um, and I think that that's likely to pass. I think the timing part of it is the biggest thing we have in our favor is just the timing. Higher prices, I don't know. Nobody knows what prices those will be. I mean, there is some discussion, of course, about you know what is an incentive price to expand capacities at the conversion and enrichment level to the West. It's really hard to predict where those prices go. There will be good incentive to expand later on down the road here. The U.S. would be the one that would ultimately probably cut this off. And I think the other side understands that you know, in the meantime, we can play the game because we know that it's coming and it's eventually going to get cut off. And so why might as well drag it out. Let's move on to probably have done enough, but just a few other things. Diablo Canyon, uh, something that's pretty close to home for you. What's the thoughts from you on continuance of this plant? And then also just some of the term contracting that they're doing. Anything you want to mention on that? ultimately it will be extended and continue to operate. They are facing a lawsuit from Friends of the Earth. This is an NGO that was spun out from the Sierra Club, I think in the 70s, if I recall correctly. Might have been late 60s, but I believe it was the 70s. Really interesting backstory there. I won't get super into it, but it's it's covered really well in the Nuclear Now documentary from Oliver Stone. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but it's pretty well done, especially when it comes to the history of the anti-nuclear movement, but the Sierra Club used to be pro-nuclear. One of the leaders of the Sierra Club left the Sierra Club, uh, cashed a check for a couple hundred K, which at the time was a lot of money, you know, in today's money, what is that? $5 million plus. Cashed that check, uh, started the Friends of the Earth and became anti-nuclear. And that check, of course, came from a fossil fuel lobbyist. Um, so Friends of the Earth is suing PG&E, basically trying to make a claim that they're violating their contractual obligation to shut down the plant. But they've got support from the uh, from the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, and the uh, Democratic supermajority in the state um, support, you know, went, you know, towed the party line because Gavin Newsom told them to. Otherwise, they would have been in favor of shutting it down, I guarantee you. Um, and I believe they just recently also got approval don't quote me on this because I don't know if this is the exact commission that, uh, but I think it was the California Coastal Commission, if I recall correctly, gave them approval uh, for, because the, that's the main kind of quote unquote environmental impact is 
the warm water that's kicked out into the ocean uh, out in front of the plant. And that, of course, affects the sea life, not necessarily negatively, but um, changes the quote unquote natural environment. And But the Coastal Commission, um, if I am remembering their name correctly, did give them approval. So they've got approval basically across the board. Uh, you know, the locals in the town right next to um, next to Diablo Canyon, which is San Luis Obispo, are, are in favor of Diablo continuing to operate. So they only got a five-year extension. But the interesting thing is that this one extension triggered a very large RFP in the market. Uh, the utility that was expecting to be shutting down their plant had to come in for near-term delivery, and that has shaken up the physical market from one uh, one utility operating a single power plant. Uh, and we're seeing life extensions all over the place. So that's just how thin the market is and how how drastic life extensions can alter and influence the physical market. And we are likely to see more. They're still working on possibly even restarting the Palisades plant that was shut down in Michigan last year. Yeah, you know, and, and similar effects happen from power plants that are on, on maintenance, care and maintenance in Japan, for example, that are not entirely decommissioned, but were shut down and are in various stages of reopening. I do think we still see another two reactors restart this year in Japan. A lot of Japanese utilities are still sitting on some a decent amount of fabricated fuel and EUP inventories. So that doesn't necessarily have the same impact as PG&E's extension, but um, all of these things affect physical markets. And basically utilities over the past 10 years have priced in and planned for abundant and cheap uranium forever because that has been their experience forever. Even when there was a price spike in the previous market, there was never a situation like we are seeing right now where you can't get filled for a 2 million pound RFP for U308 uh, for delivery into two years out. Um, never have we seen this market structurally this tight, even when the price ran from you know less than 10 bucks a pound to 134 bucks a pound over the course of five years. We're now 18 bucks to almost 60 uh, and there's basically no material out there. So who really knows where this is going to go? But yeah, Diablo Canyon, I applaud uh, the governor, who I despise for other reasons, for doing this. It clearly was an obvious thing. I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a political maneuver other than he's probably going to make a bid for the presidency at some point. And obviously, if they shut that down, it's 10% of the electricity for the state of California, which has one of the largest GDPs in the world, if it were a country. So that's not a good plan <laughs> to have rolling blackouts. Uh, so I'm pleased that it was extended. I would like to see it get extended beyond 2030, and hopefully it does when we approach that date. These these locations, Justin, they're headed back to third world. Some of the silliness. I mean, clowns of the earth. I would. They should rename it. Clowns of the earth is what they should rename that anti-nuclear lobby. It, truly, clowns. And the water discharge issue. Just that it's even in the conversation, and that I'm telling you, it's doubtful. It's it's really some silly stuff, and. And then just, you know, because you and I know this area well, the West Coast of the U.S., the fires and, and some of the attacks on these utilities. Do you have anybody else to replace and provide power to you? Do you think right. that they're just going to choke down these lawsuits without raising rates or finding ways to get back? Silly stuff. It really yeah. is silly. But anyway, nonetheless, it's good to see it. Hope things go successfully there. Obviously, the state needs high quality, high density energy. Thanks for mentioning that. And the pipelines of restarts and new builds coming online here over the next, uh, this year and next year looks really good. And of course, we only tend to try to look out maybe 
two to three years as something that we can really count on. But uh, really good numbers coming down the pipeline on this as well. Really good kudos as well, just on new facilities. The UAE has knocked it out of the park with Bagara, mm-hmm. a fantastic facility. People are doing it right and they're being smart about it. Meanwhile, in other places, man, it's laughable. So before we wrap up, just on term contracting and you know, mention what you can here. I know there's some sensitivities with respect to internal research, Justin, which we don't want to give, you know, don't want to give away unless you're willing to. But under these key restocking years, which is right here in front of us, what do you think on how much pounds need to be contracted? I know it's pretty broad and we could talk a lot on that, but just basic thoughts on that picture for the audience to think about. Some historical context I think is also necessary. If we go back to um, the previous 10 years or so, utilities have under-contracted and they've been able to do that because they've been able to shore up their their uranium needs in the spot market and through carry trades. Um, Carry trades, essentially a trader will sign a, you know, midterm three to five year contract, let's say with a nuclear utility, then they'll go out and cover cover that uh, delivery obligation by purchasing uranium from, from a producer offtake or most likely from the spot market. And there was so much above ground mobile inventory surplus from the previous decade, as I mentioned earlier, that this was a, this was a boon for traders and it was a, a gravy train for nuclear utilities. And the reasoning behind that is why would they go ahead and incentivize producers? And the the example I like to give would be if we go back, let's say four years from now, MacArthur River is shut down. Cameco is incurring $10 million a month in care and maintenance costs. And they are uh, telling utilities, hey, this is going to stay offline until we sign contracts at prices we need. Now, they wouldn't ever dictate what that price was uh, publicly. But let's just go ahead and throw it out there that in 2019, they probably wanted 45 bucks a pound fixed. And then, um, you know, the rest of the contract would be market referenced. So at the time of delivery. So if you're a utility in 2019 and you've got the spot price, let's see, what was the spot price then in the high 20s, low 30s? And you could sign a midterm contract, let's say, for delivery from two to five years out with a carry trader at $34 a pound fixed uh, and the rest market referenced or or entirely fixed potentially, right? Why would you show up to Cameco and take one for the team, quote unquote, and sign a $45 fixed price contract when you can sign a contract for $15 a pound less? That is a huge, huge financial savings. And the only reason why you would do that would be to uh, help this producer get this care and maintenance mine back online by signing that contract, get it back online sooner to protect yourself from potentially higher prices in the future. Well, how many utilities did that? Basically zero. Um, Utilities have budgets. Those budgets for nuclear fuel are always changing based on the market pricing. And at the time they were being told by the nuclear fuel consultants that there's plenty of uranium and it's unlikely that we see substantially higher prices anytime soon. Of course, those consultants were 100% wrong. Now they are playing catch up and they're telling the industry, uh, get ready for higher prices, whether or not it's driven by sput and the like. Higher prices are coming. Don't expect the prices to come back down. And when they say don't expect the prices to come back down, what they're really saying is 
you better be buying and you better be covering your ass. Because if you're going to sit this thing out and hope for $42 uranium again coming from the Russians or whoever it might be, uh, you've got something else coming to you. And so even the conservative entities are, uh, are, are waving the warning flag here. As far as volumes go, uh, so the, the term quadrant volumes were, you know, less than, let's say, 60-70% of their total needs for a 10-year period. Uh, last year, we saw, what was the 114 million pounds contracted in last year? That was getting better. That was the first year of that type of volume since uh, 2012. And this year, I firmly believe we're going to hit replacement rate contracting and then some. And part of the reasoning I believe that is the options and the flex in the system are gone. So you don't really have the option of entering into a carry trade contract. Why? Because interest rates are high and there's not a lot of uranium out there, as I previously mentioned by that, you know, these RFPs barely getting filled or not getting filled. So uh, a trader doesn't really have that option. It's difficult to make a profit on that spread uh, due to the interest rates. And it's difficult to source that uranium unless they have a uh, an offtake. And even then, in this pricing environment, there's not a lot of confidence in where the price is going to be at the time of delivery. So that creates um, you know, uncertainty amongst traders and utilities, which they do not like. So utilities have essentially one option, sign long-term contracts, and they're doing it. Um, we've, we've, we're at officially 107.1 million pounds signed year to date with uh, almost half the year through. Uh, another piece of evidence is that in inventories are historically slightly on the lower side. We haven't seen inventory restocking in a very long time. We have seen a leaning on inventory. So when you see, for example, last year, 135 million pounds produced, 180 million pounds consumed. Let's say we had 15 million pounds of secondary supply. So that's 150. You're still 30 million pounds short. Well, what is that 30 million pounds? That's inventory drawdown. That's the plug number that you'll get from the consultants. Basically, what I'm trying to say is inventories are on the low side. The EIA numbers just came out a couple of days ago. Inventories in the United States for nuclear utilities drew down last year by 4%. These folks should have been building up their inventories. They were doing the opposite. A flood is coming when it comes to contracting volumes. We believe, based on our work, we're going to see above replacement rates, so above 180, 185 million pounds, probably see north of 200 million pounds contracted per year for the next three to five years. And those are just the contracting rates. You know, the overall demand continues to rise. Certain entities are definitely more covered than others. We're already hearing that some utilities are looking for enrichment contracts into the 2040s. And they're starting to wake up and some of the first movers are covered. You know, the, the larger smart utilities, especially in the United States, are decently covered here um, and have been for a couple of years. But for the most part, the utilities move kind of like herd animals. And I'm not saying that to to be insulting, but they just sort of are following the trend. They're listening to the consultants, what they've told them for the past number of years. And up until maybe the past 12 months, the consultants have told them everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's not fine. And we're about to see robust volumes in the term market and the prices are going to go way higher because of that. Yeah, for the most part, Justin, and those are good numbers, by the way, for the most part, complacency has prevailed as a result of the abundance over the last decade. 
and you really only bought what you needed immediately to fill. And so it's just, it's, it's similar to a just-in-time inventory model. If not, if you weren't participating in that, you were just drawing down. Uh, of course, there were a few exceptions. There's been some smart people make some smart moves at smart prices. But yeah, good stuff there. And uh, I think those numbers are well-situated. So I appreciate you sharing that much. And that was a good piece for the audience to take in. Parting thoughts, any attacks for me or for the reckless hate on Twitter? <laughs> no, man. I mean, it's it's all love coming from my side. Like I said, investing is hard. And so, you know, when, when people are nasty towards me, I tend to not take it personally. I just block them because I don't really have the time or energy to focus on, on that type of immature vitriol. Um, but honestly, you, you're going to see frustrations ex, uh, expressed when the markets cycle down. And that's what we saw. And to me, it's a huge sentiment indicator. So when I saw, you know, a lot of hate towards the uranium thesis and on uranium Twitter and the RSI was falling off the screen for the equities, I was buying aggressively. Um, so in some ways, I actually appreciate these folks and um, I, I don't have any hate whatsoever towards them. As far as the market goes, and there's any, any parting thoughts, I mean, I think we, we covered a lot here. I don't know necessarily what we missed other than, if, if I'm really going to sum it up, I would basically say from a standpoint of where we are right now with you with equities still let's say 30 to i mean some of the small caps are still off 60 percent from the high print or more um that's why you got to be careful with those and a lot of times the people that are shouting from the rooftops and complaining they they didn't diversify very well and they picked the wrong horse and you know that happens right but from the place where we are with the equity valuations where we're at and taking a snapshot of the thesis i would just say this based on conservative growth estimates for the sector and the structural nature of the physical market and the very, very simple supply and demand outlook for the sector, we have a phenomenal setup to be long uranium and long uranium equities for the coming years. On top of that, we have a couple of X factors that cannot be modeled, but they're definitely there. One, the physical funds and trust. We've talked about them enough. I don't need to go back into that. Models do not speculate on secondary demand from financials because they can't. We don't know if Sput's going to buy a million pounds this year, 5 million pounds this year, 10 million pounds this year. We don't know. So we cannot model that. But they are there. And so is Zuri. And so is Yellowcake. We know how much Yellowcake can buy, 100 million pounds a year from Kazadimprom. We don't know how much ANU is going to buy. We don't know how much these three or four other funds that are in the works are going to end up buying this year or next year and beyond. We can't model that, but it's there. Second X factor is SMRs. You'll see a story about another country signing some type of MOU with an SMR developer almost on a daily basis, Andrew. And you cannot model out what the demand is going to be for SMRs, but it's going to be something I can practically guarantee you that. I can tell you what Trade Tech, a nuclear fuel analyst and consultant that I highly respect, I think their work has been more accurate than their competitors in the space, historically speaking. Um, they've been, for lack of a better word, more bullish, uh, more constructive on the higher price environment outlook for the entire fuel cycle, uranium included. Their numbers for SMR demand for uranium is a minimum. 
of 200 million pounds of cumulative, not annual, cumulative demand between now and 2035. So for the next uh, 11 years, let's say, 200 million pounds of additional demand for SMRs. And that is going to be a snowball because right now there are zero of these operating. There are a few under construction globally. There are dozens and dozens of designs that are brilliant and inspiring and address a lot of the concerns of the anti-nuclear crowd. And I do think this has some momentum. And I do believe that the first ones coming online later part of the decade, early 2030s, that's going to see demand on the Iranian market, probably 2027, maybe 2026, maybe 2028. That demand is coming. And how much? Nobody knows. But the trade tech numbers, I'm telling you, 200 million pounds on top of already what is a very concerning supply situation for the existing fleet and the expected growth of the fleet based on construction starts that have already happened, which right now I believe is... Uh, 20 something reactors under construction. If I recall correctly, I might be off on that number currently right now, globally. Uh, you know what? That might just be China's numbers. I have to go back to it. I don't have it right in front of me, but look, the growth of the sector is profound. SMRs and physical funds are the X factor. We know they're going to be something, but we can't model it out. So I just, I, I love the investing setup here because if you just completely ignore the physical funds and the smr potential demand it's a profoundly incredible setup but those two things are there and they are going to have some impact and they could have an incredible impact and they could have a small impact but whatever it is it's gravy on top of an already profound thesis so that's kind of my overall final thoughts is even if i erase those two x factors i'm very long, very constructive, uh, and very hopeful about, about this investment and about the nuclear energy uh, sector and its growth for the future and the benefits to humanity that it will provide. So I love all of that. But the nitro is in is already installed in the car. And whether or not the driver pulls that lever, we don't know, but it is there. Well said, Justin. I appreciate that. And, you know, don't worry, we're not going to block you, Justin. We'll just... Uh... We'll just laugh at the office about whatever you do. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, nice to have uh, some levity around it. You know, it's it's all good. It's all good. Um, we 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 take these things pretty lightly, but of course, we take our work seriously. So, absolutely, uh, that uh, goes without saying. And and certainly, you know, and having a little bit of fun in the process, I think that's the important part here. Let's leave it there. I know we've covered a lot and a lot of time here. You and I both need to get on with our daily work and we've got operations to run, but just briefly here, a good opportunity here for you to mention it. Talk about the Uranium Insider Services for what you want to say, the context, uh, of course, of the beatings you've received. We've already covered that, but you know, why should folks, whether it be a high net worth, a retail, a family office, funds, et cetera, why should they consider your work in the sector? Sure. Well, we can be found at uraniuminsider.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter relatively frequently. Um, I would say the two primary reasons why anybody invested or interested in investing in the sector uh, should consider our service are that A, we significantly outperform the market benchmarks. Um, so uh, our, our investing choices in the sector have thus far offered significant alpha. That's something that we believe we'll be able to do continuously going forward based on our process for choosing our investments. So that's one. Two, I would say that one of the primary elements of our service is to 
distill down the very complex moving parts of the uranium fuel cycle into what the movements in that fuel cycle mean from an investment perspective and how they will dictate the expected movements of price going forward. It's a very volatile investment. It's a very complex sector. The fuel cycle is notoriously opaque and difficult to understand until you really dive into it. And we do this on a monthly basis and to some extent on a daily basis. I, I do daily market update videos that I'll do not quite every day, about three or four a week, where I discuss what needs to be discussed in the sector. And we focus on this every single day. So basically what we feel we offer is kind of like a wingman for this investment, if you will, um, because of our connections in the sector and our network that we talked about at the top of the podcast, um, we have access to information that most retail investors do not. And so we share, uh, we share that information with our members. And I believe in from what we hear from our members in our communications is that this has incredibly benefited them in their ability to weather the volatility and have the conviction to position during times when the retail crowd is dumping. We aim to give our members a continuous pulse on what is happening in this sector. And I personally think that's absolutely fundamentally crucial for anybody with money on the line to understand what is going on in the physical market is paramount. So going forward, we're, we're committed to this. And this is all that we do is focus on the uranium sector. And uh, we love it. I've got a small dedicated team. My primary partner is an ex-head fund manager in the metals space. He's very sharp, very experienced. And we've got a number of um, analysts and folks that work for us in the background. So it's a great operation. It's a, it's a wonderful experience so far. And we're so constructive as the last couple of hours of this conversation should make obvious on the next few years for this, for this investment. Um, we, we, we welcome new members and, and look forward to uh, having anybody listening join us. Well, Justin, appreciate the time today. Good luck ahead in the sector and best wishes to you and the group there. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. It's always a pleasure.